So, Maureen, thank you so much for, for joining us today. You're also part of the podcast series, Friends of My Parents, I guess we could call it at this point. I think you're number eight or so, my parents' friends on our podcast. My mom was talking about you, quite interesting. You have basically have lived outside of the United States for the last 13 years, and you sold all of your possessions, got rid of your investments, sold your house. So you're basically a true nomad. Talk about how you just decided that you're going to sell everything and leave the U.S. And you've done this for over a decade now. So it's not like this has been something that you haven't stuck with. 13 years is is quite a impressive amount of time. Well, it, it actually, interestingly, it was not an overnight decision. When people ask me, when did you decide this or how did you decide to do this? It happened in stages, and I think that's fairly common. At one point, I needed to evacuate my home in San Diego for fires. And so I needed to walk around. I had 20 minutes to decide what's important to take. That was the first message to me that there isn't a lot. There's not a lot that I have to take. And then when I downsized my home, my children grew up, they have their own lives. I downsized my home. I got rid of lots more then. When I retired, I thought, I really don't need or want any of this. I want to explore the world. So that was the final stage. So I went to an island and had all of my possessions liquidated. I think the hardest thing was to sell my little red sports car. That was... <laughs> But um, but I did it, and, and I have never regretted it. My only possessions are a few small treasures that fit in my carry-on suitcase that either, like, my kids gave me or that I've collected that are very special. The few important papers that I want to have with me, my electronics, and a few clothes. That's really all I decided I need, and I've been doing just fine with that for all this time. So as a nomad, where did you begin? What countries did you start? How long do you stay in each location for? Take us through the journey of your last 13 years. I started on an island and it's a U.S. territory island of St. Croix. So I had the ability to stay there. As a U.S. citizen, I could stay. So I did stay there for a couple of years and I got involved in a lot of volunteer work and made a lot of connections there. But when I'm looking at where I want to go, there are two things I look at primarily before I move forward with anything else. I'm a solo, single woman traveler. The very first thing I look at when I want to decide where to go is, is it safe for me? And that's a very big issue, and it is specific to women travelers. So I look at safety first. Is this a country that would be safe for me? And then I look at budget because I know people think I have lots of money, but I have very little. I can do this because I have no possessions, because I have no financial responsibilities. So I look at safety and I look at budget. And then I look at climate and location. Because I live on a small small budget, small income, I don't want to spend $1,000 on a flight to fly halfway around the world and then three months later come back to the same area. So budget is an issue, cost of living. And I have priorities in my life. I want to be in a place that is warm, first of all. I'm not a winter person. So I look for places that will be warm. I look for places that will have activities going on. I'm a social person and I'm a dancer. I look for places where I can dance, where I can connect with people. All of those are considerations when I think about where do I want to go. So from the first island, then I went to Panama and I spent some time in Panama for, for a while. That worked really well for me. And then it just, we all kind of evolve, we all change our interests, we all change our perceptions of things. So it was time to move on. Once I left Panama, my planning became no longer than three months in one place. And that is because as a U.S. citizen, most countries will allow me a three-month visitor visa and then I'm out. So my nomadic life became much more frequent. At least every three months, I needed to be in a new place. 
So that certainly affected, you know, logistically, that affected my planning. And when you're traveling in Europe, which is a very common area for people to want to travel to, when you travel in Europe, as a visitor, you can stay for 90 days in what's called the Schengen Zone, which is a collection of countries. After that 90 days, you need to leave that whole collection of countries for 90 days. So you have to be in and out as a traveler. That is a logistical piece that also comes into my planning. So there are lots of things that go into it, but those are kind of the primary things. So you just decided to do this on a, a solo trip, or was this something that you and your significant other didn't want to do together? How did you make that decision after talking with your kids and then deciding, like, I'm going to go to St. Croix? Well, by the time I retired, I retired early, but by the time I retired, which is when I started traveling, I no longer had the significant other, and I had the two children, but they were both now grown, one out of college, one entering college. This kind of was a perfect time in my life to have the total freedom to just decide where I wanted to go, how long I wanted to stay. So that was a, a factor when I became the, the nomad traveler. I didn't really need to, um, my plans could all be based on what I want to do, which certainly made it easier. Yeah, it does make it easier. So when I was talking to my parents, it seemed like you used to, at, at some points, did you ever house sit for people or dog sit? Because you're meant, to, you know, like you were saying, you have a kind of a smaller budget. And when you're constantly moving around, you're constantly spending money. So like, what are some of the tricks that you use to actually afford this lifestyle and make it a little bit more budget friendly? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't do the house sitting that I know so many people do. For me, it's a sense of responsibility that at this point in my life, I'd prefer not to have. So if I can do it without house sitting, that's my preference. So that has not really been as, as big a consideration for me. But what I do is I am constantly looking for budget places to go, budget travel, budget places to stay. One of the strategies that I use for accommodations, I actually have several strategies that I use for accommodations. Most often, travelers will look at sites like Airbnb, Booking.com, the common sites for booking accommodation. Sometimes that works well, depending on where I go. Sometimes that does not work so well. So I have done things a little more creatively oftentimes. Sometimes when I'm looking for my next new place to live, I will contact property managers in that area and let them know that I need a place for three months do they have any owners who would like to rent for that three months? Or do they know anyone? When I went to Grenada Island, that worked really well. A um, friend of a friend of this property manager had a fabulous little two-bedroom house overlooking the bay for $400 a month. So it was amazing. When I went to Ireland, all the housing was way higher than what I could afford. So I put an ad in their local newspaper. I wanted to live in Galway for three months. So I put an ad in their local newspaper and made it very concise, saying I am a single, non-smoking, female nomad looking for furnished housing for three months. I will treat your home like my own because it will be. And I had an almost immediate response from a woman who said, oh my God, I just renovated my beautiful townhome in Galway. And now my job got transferred for the next four months to Dublin. And I don't want to rent to a bunch of students, uh, Galway is a university town, who will not take care of it. So I got a really great price renting from her. I'll do creative things like that oftentimes if the typical sites are out of my reach. And you're in Turkey right now. So did you do any creative planning for Turkey? What was the reason you selected Turkey right now? Well, Turkey became part of my route because I mentioned earlier that I'm a dancer. And in May of this past year, 
I attended a one-week dance event in Portugal. And then at the same time, I signed up for another dance event, similar dance event in Cyprus, taking place in Cyprus the end of October. So I had these two places that I wanted to be. So my planning from May to end of October became travel from Portugal to Cyprus. And so that was how I planned all of my six, seven months of 2023. And that was great. So I traveled through these different countries. And some of them were much shorter because there were a lot of places I wanted to see. So that was a lot of travel during that time. After I did the Cyprus event, I thought, I have always wanted to see Turkey. And this makes total sense. I'm right close by. So I contacted one of the other common strategies that I use to help me decide where to go somewhere and whether it's safe and whether it's economical is I join Facebook groups in the locations I want to go. So months before I came to Turkey, I got on the Istanbul, because my first choice, my first piece of that was to go to Istanbul, got on the Istanbul um, Facebook groups, everyone I could find, and joined those and started asking questions. That's extremely helpful because you're talking to real people who are there, and they will tell you the real story. So I ended up actually finding a great little apartment in Istanbul in a local neighborhood through the Facebook groups. And at this point, I'm now planning to go to, um, I'm going to head south from Turkey and go to Sri Lanka and Zanzibar. So did the same thing. Got on their Facebook groups, contacted people. And anyone who responded who seemed like they really understood what I was asking and understood what my questions were, then we connect through Messenger. And through that, I now have two really great places to stay in Sri Lanka and Zanzibar. So those are some of the strategies that I use. It takes some time. It does take some time because I do a lot of research on this. And you're saying that you basically move every three months due to visa restrictions. And between St. Croix and Panama, that was your first couple of years. But basically for the next 11 years, you're essentially moving every three months, which is four times a year. So the last, at least, right? So over the last 11 years, you've had at least, you know, 44 different locations. Yes. I've been to over 50 countries now. The moving part, when I, I used to travel. I lived abroad for a while, but every time you switch countries is when you're spending the money, right? And if you have to get out of this whole zone and you're moving, right? you know, I don't know, five countries over, I mean, that's where most of the money, like I said, you could probably rent a place for the equivalent, you know, for uh, six weeks for one flight or a train ride or something. And that's another part of my strategy. I wanted to get to know Europe. I wanted to go to quite a few of the European countries. And again, I could be three months in and then I had to be three months out. So for instance, if I spent three months in Spain, now I needed to get out of Schengen for three months. So I went to Crete, which is Greece. That was not very far. And then I could come back into a European country, one of the other European countries. So part of my strategy also is keeping that travel cost down because that is the biggest expense. Like you said, having to go to a new place every three months, transportation is my biggest expense and I budget that in and stretch that over over time. So, yeah, so I have a flight coming up soon, the one from Sri Lanka to Zanzibar will be an expensive flight. But over the summer, going through these European countries, I traveled mostly by train and bus. So I didn't have much transportation cost for six months. So when people look at budgeting, when they talk about budgeting, oftentimes people are budgeting on a month-to-month basis. I don't really do that. I look for a balance over six months or a year, because I know that like when I go to Zanzibar, that's going to cost me more to get there. But previous to that, I had very little transportation costs. So I balanced that out. 
And that's also a reality of being a nomad on a small budget. I always get very reasonable accommodation. So I can live very basically. I have lived in some very basic homes and that's okay. My criteria for where I'm living is I need to have Wi-Fi. I need to have a washer or access to a washer to clean clothes. And I need to have some type of kitchen because I do live on a small budget. People ask me, what are your favorite restaurants in Istanbul? Well, I only went to restaurants in Istanbul when I was out socially with other people. Otherwise, I'm cooking at home. So I can live very basically, and and I'm happy. You have to be okay to not be living in luxurious settings. Never stay in hotels. Never. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that really breaks your budget on you, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just never can do that. Or, Or never really want to, really. And you're talking about the was it the Schengen zone? And what countries does that consist of, or a group of countries? If I name them, it would take too long because there are 26 or 27 of them on the list now. But if you do an internet search and you just search on Schengen zone countries, it'll pull up the list of all of them that are in it. What's a little bit tricky is that they're not necessarily all EU countries. Some EU countries have joined this, a few have not. A few countries who are not in the EU have decided to join Schengen. So I follow that list. I really look at that list because if you outstay your 90-day requirement, your 90-day limit, penalties are very, very heavy. The first penalty will be a hefty fine. That would not kill me. But what would kill me is they can ban you from coming back to the Schengen zone, and that would kill me. So I am very good about following that 90-day rule and knowing who's on that list. So when I went to Slovenia and spent two weeks, I thought, okay, that's two weeks in Schengen. They're in Schengen. But I went to Montenegro for three weeks. They're not in Schengen. So I had to know as I traveled across that six months who was and who wasn't in Schengen. When I transited through Greece actually on my way to Istanbul, on my way to Turkey, the immigration person flipped through my my passport over and over. She was counting how many days I had spent in Schengen since I came to Europe in May. They do watch, they do count. And she said, are you staying in Greece? You know, you don't have many days left. And I said, no, I'm just transiting through and I do understand. So how exactly does this work? So as soon as you hit 90 days, you can then leave for 90 days and then come back. So it's not like you have to wait a whole calendar year. You just got to wait 90 days. And then you can keep doing this. You can leave for 90 days, come back for 90 days, leave for 90 days, come back for 90 days, over and over. And that's what I've done a lot. So go to France for three months, go to Greece for, you know, or well, not Greece because they're, they're in Schengen, but go to Croatia, for instance. Although now they are, they just got entered in. But when I went, they were not. So then I could go there and I could go to any countries I wanted that were not in Schengen for 90 days. And then I could come back into Schengen. So yeah. And I don't want to spend too much time on that because it's really a US issue. People who are in Europe that people who are in other countries don't. But it's absolutely a U.S. issue for travelers. I'd imagine probably Canada or Australia are probably you know similar if you're in South America or something, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would imagine, yeah. I just know that I have to follow that. And so that's one of the things that just dictates where I go when I'm looking at my next new place. Do you ever get you know burned out from having to just switch countries every three months? Three months is basically the longest you could stay. I'm sure in some places you're there for you know for three weeks or something. And you've done this for 13 years, so I think a lot of people would have probably been burned out already. Seems like you're going strong though. <laughs> so far, so far, I'm still going. That is an issue, actually, and people do talk about that. And I have. Uh, I think really, as I was getting ready to come back up into Europe in May, I was feeling some of that burnout then and thinking, you know, once I get through this six months of Portugal to Cyprus, I really want to sit still for a while. That can happen. 
And if you start feeling that way, then you need to find a place where you can spend a longer amount of time. I stayed in Mexico for four months. I can stay there for six. UK allows us to stay for six. I'm going to Mauritius later this year, and I can extend to six months there. But yeah, it can be a, a factor, especially if there are lots of challenges. If things are falling apart a lot, then it definitely can cause some burnout. You said you retired. Do you plan on doing this for another 10, 20 years, or do you have a, a timeline on as long as you can, yeah, because you have a lot more complexities than if you just set up shop like my parents in Panama or someone in Florida or something like that. And every three months, you're on the, on the like you said, if you're planning your next move, probably as soon as you get to a place, you're already scoping out the next place or even before, even right? Because another challenge of being a nomad in the travel piece of that is that I buy one-way plane tickets if I'm, if I'm going by plane. It's a one-way ticket. I'm not returning because there is no place to return to. So I buy a one-way ticket. Many, many countries, when you come into their country, they want to see your exit ticket. They want to know that you are leaving. So I have to be two jumps ahead. I have to know where I'm going next and where I'm going after that in case they ask for that exit ticket. And so I do plan enough ahead to be able to do that. I was in New Zealand, and I actually, the only reason I had a return ticket is because I found some return ticket for like 30 bucks, and I just bought it because I didn't actually plan on using it, but I was like, oh, it's 30 bucks. But when I was in the hostel, like I like biked and hiked across New Zealand, but when I was in the hostel talking to people, and so many of the people in the hostel were like, man, I had to buy a $400 plane ticket. They made me buy one right at the airport, and they just ended up buying some last minute thing, paying a bunch of money. They're like, what did you do? I was like, oh, I, I knew that. So I just bought a cheap one for 30 bucks that I didn't yeah, plan on using. Yeah, that's yeah, just to go anywhere, just get out. Yeah. Yeah. There actually are a couple of companies, online companies that are a resource for people that allow you to buy a plane ticket, a legitimate plane ticket, and then 24 hours later, cancel it for free. And so that has been a resource. I've never used it, but I know that's a, a resource as well. I've used that before. As, okay. I say I've used it a few. I've used it a few times. Yeah, I think I ended up paying like you pay for like a service fee, but it's right it's some small. Cheap. Right, right. When I went to New Zealand, I was I had spent three months in Australia, and then I was going on down to New Zealand, and I had an exit ticket. For New Zealand, but when I checked in at the airport in Australia to fly there, they asked for it, and I had neglected to print it out. I'm usually really, really well organized, and that that's another factor. If you're going to live a nomad life, you do need to have some pretty good organizational skills. For some reason, I forgot to print it out, and I couldn't find it on my phone. I said, "Wait a minute, just hang on, I'll find it in my email." I couldn't find it, so the Airline agent is standing there with my passport in her hand saying, step out of line and when you can show me an exit ticket, I will check you in. And she held my passport. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> this was not a good feeling. Luckily, after, I don't know, another five minutes or 10 of frantically searching my phone, I found the ticket. But yeah, and, and sometimes I go and, and they don't ask at all. Some countries don't even ask. I think it's like Ryanair in Europe, where if you don't have the actual plane ticket printed out, if you just use your cell phone, they like don't accept, at least when I was there, they won't accept it. Or if they do, they they charge you like $150 electronic processing fee. Or like when I was in Indonesia, I've been to Indonesia like three times, but I know a lot of people when they leave Indonesia, they spend all their money. So they don't have any cash on them. And then they charge you, I forget the amount, but I think it was the equivalent of like a $50 exit fee but you have to use the local currency and people don't and they charge you costa rica also has an exit but it, depending on the airline it might be built into the the price but indonesia at least when i was there it was not and then they have all these atm machines out there so you have to go to an atm and then of course there's like a 20 dollar atm processing fee and then of course you have you know so it's like 70 dollars to leave but i would talk to people i knew about i was in thailand before so i knew people were like oh you're going to bali like make sure you have cash when you leave but 
people's whole budget, like you go to New Zealand, don't have an exit ticket, spend $400, and you go to Bali, have this exit fee. Like people's budget is like, I knew so many people that would be like, they would blow $700, $800. It's like chess. So you can't be one move ahead of your opponent. You got to be like three moves ahead or four moves ahead. Exactly. Some of the strategy that I use in my lifestyle is I keep a spreadsheet, a yearly spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet or it's a, a Word document or whatever, I'm not calculating anything, but essentially spreadsheet format. Um, I keep track on there of first column is the dates, where I want to be, how I'm going to get there, where I'm going to stay, and then any other notes that are relevant. As I start to plan my year, which I'm doing right now for 2024, as I start to plan that, all of those things that are not completed, that are ideas, that are possibilities, are in red ink. So they're typed in red. And then as I start to put it together, then I can change them to black. And so I check that every single day to see what have I not done yet for my next place? Did I buy that ticket? Have I taken care of that accommodation? Is that refundable in case this falls apart? There are so many moving parts to doing this that you do need to have some type of organization or you'd go crazy because, as you said, I am sitting here in beautiful Antalya, Turkey, thoroughly enjoying it, but spending part of each day planning for my next segments, my next homes. There's a lot of time spent in researching, planning, making connections, all of that. What's the difference between, say, a nomad and a backpacker? Oh, that's, it's so funny that you would ask me that because I was just traveling recently. One of the things that I love about my lifestyle now since I've been doing it a while is that I've met people from all over the world and now I'm starting to like reconnect with some of them in different places, which is so much fun. So anyway... I reconnected with a friend just a few months ago who is now also a nomad. She has sold her uh, property and is just kind of going around the world. But I think of her more as a backpacker than a nomad because she travels with just a few bits of clothes, a backpack, and she goes from place to place with very little planning. Maybe I'll stay here a week. Maybe then I'll go on to somewhere else for three weeks. And doesn't really get involved in the area that she's living. And But, you know, I mean, she's, she's having a fabulous time and she's doing some incredible discoveries. It's very cool. But that to me is backpacking. The difference to me is with nomading, I do stay in a place long enough to get to know that place. So my point in traveling, just for me personally, is to learn about other cultures. I can't do that by going somewhere for a week and saying, okay, I think I'll go over here now or I'm going to check that out now. I want to learn about a place. That's why I want to stay for three months and longer if I'm allowed, but it's typically three months. So during that time, I get an apartment. I don't stay in hotels or even hostels. I get an inexpensive apartment in a local community. And I have local neighbors around me. I stay long enough to get to know them. I find volunteer opportunities. That's a, a, a big thing for me because that connects me to the community. I find volunteer jobs to do. I find the dance groups that I can get involved with. So to me, there's a difference between living on a place and living in a place. I heard that phrase probably eight years ago, and it really stuck with me. If you are traveling to really learn about the world and learn about cultures, which is what my priority is, you need to live in a place, not on it. You need to stay long enough to become a local or as much as you're able to become a local and be part of that community. So to me, that's kind of the difference. How long does it take to become a local? Depends on where I go. Some places are more open than others. It really does make a difference that I join as many groups as possible. So again, before I get to the place, I'll connect with Facebook groups. 
I look to see if internations.org has a chapter there. I look up meetup groups, which is interest groups, and join whatever interest groups I can find. Those are some things that I do. I look for volunteering. And sometimes the volunteering is something as minor as helping at an animal shelter once a week or volunteering in a thrift store once a week. Depends on what it is. Some have been more involved than others. Those things will get you connected to a community very quickly. And you said you're on this budget, but you're retired. Is it more your social security then? Or have you planned for this in terms of like every year you set aside a certain amount of money or is this re- social security 401k? I was out of the country for about five years at one point and people had always thought I was a trust funder. They always just thought like my parents are paying for it. I was like, oh no, I, I, you know. One of the most common questions I've gotten from people is, wow, how do you have so much money that you can travel all the world? And I think, I have less money than anybody I know. I don't know anyone who lives on much smaller income than I have. But the two incomes, my small pension and my social security, are steady. You know, those will always be there. Those are what I know I can count on, and I try to keep my budget within those which is why I travel by buses and trains. I stay in very basic accommodations. I also have a backup plan. I did plan towards my retirement, and I have an IRA that I can draw from when I need to. But my goal is not to need to draw from that. And since we're talking a little bit about budget, you've lived in over 50 countries, Marine. So what was the cheapest one or some of the, doesn't have to be the cheapest one per se, but some of the cheapest that you'd say, maybe like your top, five, so to speak. Because I think usually like the, the, nothing to me is like that cheap compared to another country, but there's some that are certainly cheaper than others. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. One of the cheapest places I lived was on Bali. And there again, you know, not in the tourist area in a hotel. That's not going to be cheap. <laughs> that, that won't happen. But living outside of that in a little local place, that was very inexpensive there. Let's see, where else was it? inexpensive. Croatia and Albania were both very inexpensive. They are not as much now because they've both kind of been discovered more since I was there seven years ago. But those were both very inexpensive and beautiful, beautiful places. I had in Croatia lived again in the suburbs of Split. So when I was looking for accommodation, I was looking for an apartment. I was going to stay there for a period of time. So I looked for an apartment that was not in the city center because that's going to be outside my budget, but in a suburb on a bus line. So when I look for accommodation, I'll ask questions like that. You know, is it close to the bus or the tram or whatever, the train station? Is there a grocery store around the corner so I can, you know, do all of all of that kind of thing? But yeah, uh, Croatia and Albania were inexpensive I spent four months in Mexico, in Merida, which was wonderful. And there again, I stayed in a suburb of the city and could hop on the bus and get into the city center in 15 minutes. So those were all, those were all pretty inexpensive. And what would you say the budget was for those first day a month there? Are you talking like $1,000 a month? Okay. For instance, in Mexico, in Merida, I had a three-bedroom house that I rented outside of the city for $400 a month. Food was very inexpensive there. I cooked at a kitchen, so most of the time I cooked. I could take the bus everywhere, which was very cheap. And um, I could even take Uber there for, you know, very cheap. In Bali, I think it, I paid, I think I had a little place there for $350 a month. And that was a small place with a kitchen. On Grenada Island, I had the two-bedroom house for 400 a month. So I really look to keep that cost down as much as possible. Ideally, I keep my total budget, monthly budget, within about $1,000. And that's housing and food and entertainment and everything. So it's a challenge. Your monthly budget is a 1000 but then you're talking about earlier how you try to balance it. So say, do you have like one month you spend maybe 600 and then the next month, you know, exactly. you might spend 15, 16, the next month you drop it back down to eight or nine, right? Is that basically the- Exactly, yeah. And that's why I just balance, you know, I balance it out over time. 
And I budget a certain amount each month kind of for transportation. Because again, during the last six months, I had very little transportation cost. Now I'm going to have some more expensive flights. You must meet other nomads. Do you meet up with certain people? Like, oh, hey, I got, you know, my friend Victoria is going to, I don't know, she's going to Bangkok or CM Reap or something for a few months. I'm going to meet up with her. Or do you not really have any people you're meeting up with? You're just kind of winging it in terms of friends. Like you just sit down and shop and go on Facebook and meet up with people? Because I would imagine you could get lonely if you're not out there mingling. Like you said, you're a sociable person. So that is, that is also a common issue that people ask about and talk about. Isn't it lonely traveling all the time? For me, it has not been because I put myself out there. When you are in this kind of a lifestyle, you need to make the effort. You need to make those connections. And that's why I join all the different social groups. I follow the dance groups around. I have a big dance community now that, you know, some of the same people who were at the Portugal dance event were at the Cyprus dance event. So I have a big community that I've developed of dance people. But I've also, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm meeting up now with people that I met in other places earlier. So, for instance, I spent six weeks in North Macedonia this past fall. And during that time, four friends, I met up with four different friends from other places during that time that I was there, which was just so cool. Friends from England came for a week. Another friend came for a week. Two others came while I was there. Yeah. So that has been a huge benefit to me. I've really loved that. I have friends from all over the world now. Do you speak any other languages? Do you ever have a language barrier when you're moving around? And how does that factor into your decision on on locations to choose? Well, first of all, it doesn't factor in at all. I don't let that intimidate me. I do speak some Spanish, and that's a pretty common language around the world. Right now, these Eastern European countries I've been in, Spanish ain't going to (laughs) work. There's no Spanish being spoken. What I do is before I get there, I try to learn a few basics. You know, I mean, I mean, truly basics. Hello, goodbye, thanks, please. Can I have the bill? The basics. And what I have found in my experience, yeah, what I have found in my experience is that I can always find someone who speaks some English. They're, they're just, I, I just have never encountered a situation, even in some of the more remote places I've been, where I can't communicate at all. And sometimes you can communicate without the language. I was in Montenegro, and I wanted to go and spend a few days in Podgorica because there were some things I wanted to go visit from there. One of my passions is secondhand shops. That answers the question people ask about wardrobe. I have my carry-on bag, and I have a few things in there to get to my next destination, and then I find a second-hand shop, and I get my wardrobe. So I was in this shop. It was so fun. There was a local woman there, older woman, who was shopping at the same time. I moved out of her way so that she could use the mirror to try on a sweater. As she tried on the sweater, I looked at her, And I gave her a thumbs up and smiled and nodded like, yeah, that looks nice. And so then she looked at me and she grabbed a different sweater. She put that sweater on. She looked at me and I said, nah, nah, kind of shook my head, said, nah, other one. We had the most fantastic conversation and encounter speaking not one word of the other's language. It was so much fun. We helped each other pick out clothes. And when I left, she blew me a kiss. It was it was fabulous. I have never let language intimidate me. And of course, with the dancing, dancing is its own language. I've danced all over the world, not speaking a word to the person I'm dancing with, and that's okay. What would be advice you'd give someone that's thinking of starting this lifestyle? After 13 years, I'm sure you've learned so much, and probably your early days, you probably did wrong. I mean, you must get this all the time when people find yeah, out you've done this for 13 years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And until just very recently, I had a website with all kinds of resources and helpful information on it, which um, I'm kind of making a shift now and I'm going to redo redo that and put some of that stuff back out there. But first of all, I think one of the primary things is you need to be flexible. You need to be organized and planned. Absolutely. 
But then you have to be flexible enough to say when that falls apart, oh, all right, I'm going to do something else then. If you can't work with that level of flexibility, this is not your lifestyle. This will never work for you. You have to have that. I've had what I call the travel gods are really ultimately in control. I've had so many things fall apart that in the moment I go, oh my God, now what am I going to do? And then there are strategies that you can use to kind of get it together and say, okay, so that didn't work. Now what's going to happen next? What do I need to do? So you have to be able to be flexible. You have to be able to go with the flow when things do fall apart. I think for me, it's just that curiosity. If you have that curiosity to get out there and learn about the world, it's just such a fantastic way to live. I've learned about so many cultures and so many different ways to live that just really have expanded my mind and really filled my life. It's been fantastic. So be able to go with the flow, be organized, be curious. You have friends that live this lifestyle as well. I mean, are you one of the longest kind of tenured you know, nomads <laughs> at 13 years? When I was traveling around, I wouldn't meet many people that traveled around for more than a few years. You know, it seems like people end up either getting burned out, running out of money. I mean, being retired, where at least you have the social security. I was born in hostel, so I met a lot of young backpackers, and they would save, you know, ten thousand dollars or or whatever. And then as soon as they ran out of money, which is why they were volunteering in hostels and you know, exactly. helping it or something, trying to stretch it out further. For the younger people, the biggest component was just they would run out of money. Or you get married or you meet someone or whatever, and all of a sudden you're changing your plan. But I would imagine at 13 years, you have to be one of the longest tenured nomads that you've encountered. That could be. That could be. I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, I guess I, I, I maybe I am. I might be the pioneer and the, you know. <laughs> but, you know, people do ask me very frequently, you know, very often, how long I'm going to do this. My only answer is as long as I can, as long as I still want to. And when I can't or I longer want to, then I'll settle somewhere. Yeah, and you really got to have a mindset. I was at this Spanish immersion school in Costa Rica for months, and I was talking to this couple from Minnesota and they're just like, Jesse, I have no idea how you just travel for so long. They're like, all I'm thinking about is work and, you know, my friends back home. And it's like two weeks because you know, two weeks is the most common length of that school. You need a couple months to get out of that mindset. If you're just going to go for two weeks, all you're going to do is exactly what you said, thinking about you, what you're missing at home, what your friends are doing, what your coworkers are doing. Even like I always said, like my first month, six weeks when I was traveling, I was kind of depressed. And then all of a sudden you break through it because you have to get that old routine out of your head. If you're clinging on right. to that, you're not going to enjoy the moment. You're going to be just having regrets instead of living in the present. Well, exactly. Living living in the present. And again, having that desire to learn um, about new places. I mean, I just, I, I feel like in this last 13 years, I've learned so much that, you know, people say, you know, <laughs> you should write a book about it. I think, well, it would be hard to even gather it all together. There's so much. Living in the present, certainly, and, you know, for me, the past is past. Well, the past is past. I had a wonderful past. I had a great life with my family in San Diego all those years. I have two absolutely tremendous young men, you know, who are my boys, not that I'm biased. And I stay in touch with them all the time. Being a nomad and traveling doesn't mean you're not connected. And I think that's really a key thing, too. I'm connected with people who are close to me every day. And I re-meet them in other places. But it is, as you said, it's looking forward and not looking back at, oh, I missed this or, you know, I need to get back to that. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a very different mindset. It definitely is. It's not easy. That's the thing is like, if you just want to live in your house, not have to arrange accommodations. And I think that's the biggest thing where traveling is stressful. Whether you're backpacking, you're being a nomad, even if you're a tourist, unless you just have some tour that is all inclusive booked for you. But if you're actually going out there and scheduling your own events and things like that, there's so much planning, nothing ever goes right. And I should say <laughs> nothing, but a lot of things don't go right. Depending on, you know, like if I was in Vietnam, like you... Yeah, the travel guides, yeah. Like, 
in Vietnam and other places, they'll just like, you'll go, like, you'll see this building and it has like this travel company full staff. And then you go back the next day to get the tour and the whole thing's gone, right? Like they just emptied out. They set up shop for a day or I've been locked in taxi cabs trying to get extorted. I think it's just like when you break up with an ex or something, you remember the positive things. You don't necessarily dwell on the, the negatives. Then you get back together and you're like, oh yeah, that's the reason we broke up. Like she's a raging alcoholic well, or whatever the reason is. Well, I remember. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, I, I think it's learn from the things that fall apart and remember, you know, really focus on the things that are positive. I have quite a few people that follow me on uh, my Facebook page, and that's where I share all my stories. I share everything that's happening with me with my travels I share. And most of it is very positive, but I do sometimes share when things fall apart, when what that feels like, because that is a reality. It is a reality. And then I can stress that, you know, well, it really all turned out okay because this is what I did next or this is how someone helped me out. So those kinds of things are certainly a reality. But those kinds of things fall apart whether you travel or not. Things in your life fall apart whether you travel or not. When people will say things to me like, well, you know, don't you worry about safety? And I say, I consider safety very strongly. It's very important to me. In all this time, I have not ever had an, an assault or a mugging or a robbery or any of those kinds of things because I'm careful, but it could happen just like it could happen on your home street, in your hometown. And so to me, there's really no connection between traveling and having something fall apart or something happen to you because it can happen to you at home as well. And you're going to use the same strategies to deal with it regardless. I think when people are so focused on, oh, you're a, another common thing that I hear all the time. Oh, you're so brave going off on your own. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. This has nothing to do with bravery. It has to do with, I have planned as carefully as I can. I've set things up as carefully as I can. And if something falls apart, I'll step back and go, Oh, okay, what now? And I'll find someone to help me. That's going to be the same whether you are traveling or at home. What are some of the highlights or your favorite countries, coolest places, things that you would highly recommend? Well, let's see. I loved living in Ireland. Ireland was... Such an amazing place. It's beautiful. Part of it was the beauty. Part of it was the people. People in Ireland are just so warm and fun. Um, you stand on a street corner waiting for a stoplight in, in a city in Ireland. Whoever is standing there next to you at that stoplight is going to start up a conversation like they've known you forever. <laughs> um, so I thoroughly enjoyed Ireland. I loved Bali, which I did not really expect. I went to Bali because I had been in Australia and New Zealand and was going to head back up towards Europe. And I thought, well, I should stop in Bali to say I've been to Bali. But I ended up absolutely loving Bali. Again, because of the people, because of the culture. Very, very peaceful, content, warm culture. For me, I guess if I'm looking at highlights, I always kind of go to what are the people like there? And those are the places that become my favorites. I went to Iceland. That was very cool. And I was in Iceland for summer solstice. So that was quite an experience because, you know, of course, it never gets dark. It's you know, midnight. I'm walking around and it's, and it's still light out. That was a very cool experience. And of course, going to the, the hot springs in Iceland and the waterfalls and all of that, I would highly recommend getting to, to see Iceland. There are a number of European countries that are just stunning, really, really wonderful to be in. One that I, one city that I really enjoyed was Ljubljana, Slovenia. I thought Slovenia was a very beautiful, beautiful place. And again, it had this kind of nice feel about it. Oh, I don't know. I mean, that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
I worked in Denali National Park for a season and I saw the summer solstice in Denali and it was super cool. It's basically like a sunrise and a sunset. Not quite simultaneously, but not far off. I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a whole, the the sky is completely different than what you've ever seen before. It's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And have you ever been to a place where you're like, oh, I'm going to be here for three months. And then you were there for a few weeks or something. And then you just changed your mind. Like, no, this place is just not for me. Or have you never been to a place where you, you were like, no, I can't, I can't be here. I have been to a few places where I realized halfway through that, you know, I don't really need to stay here another six weeks, but typically I follow through anyway and I stay. But yeah, there have been a few where I've thought, okay, I'm kind of ready to go now. And what places were those? Well, let's see. One of the islands that I was on just really didn't have things that I was looking for as it didn't have things that I expected to find so much. And so I was kind of ready to leap there. But, you know, there again, I think is one of the differences between being a backpacker and my lifestyle, because a backpacker would say, well, okay, I don't really see anything else here I want to see, so I'm going to go now. Whereas I'm more like, well, you know, I I committed to this. I'm going to give this a shot. I want to learn what I can here. And so even though the last, you know, six weeks wasn't intriguing, I got things from it. And in one case, I had connected with my landlady, and she took me to places that I wouldn't have seen otherwise, and I had a nice connection with her. So I thought, you know, stay with it. And so, yeah, I I tend to stay. I mean, accommodations I might leave. I definitely have had to leave a few accommodations, but not country or, or, you know. When people find out about your lifestyle, what are some of the most common questions or reactions you get when when people find out you've been living in these 50 countries for the last 13 years? First of all, they go, wow, really? (laughs) It's a very uncommon thing to do unless you're connected with other nomads. It's, It's certainly not a common lifestyle. So one of the first things people say, because I'm a single woman traveling alone, they'll say, oh, you're so brave. And I've already talked about that, that it's really more about having strategies. It's not about bravery. But I do hear that a lot. I hear must be nice to have all that, which, you know, we kind of talked about. But, you know, people also say, well, you know, don't you get lonely? That's another common one. How do you decide where to go? And there again, it's planning my route, planning where I want to go next based on what's practical. One of the things that people will say oftentimes is, well, I like my routines. I don't want to keep going from place to place. I I like my routines. I like being at home with my routines. And my response to that is, I have my routines. I like routines also. I love to do them in different places, but I like my routines. I get up in the morning and no matter where I am, I make that first cup of coffee and no one better talk to me until I've had that cup of coffee. If I'm traveling with someone or I'm traveling alone, that's how I start my day is that cup of coffee and read. That's what I read. So I have my coffee and I read and then I get into my day. That's one of my routines. I have have that same routine no matter where I am. And also everywhere that I go, I make it my home. As people say, oh, I, I have to have a home. And I do have a home. Everywhere that I go is my home. Right now, Antalya, Turkey is my home. I have a nice apartment here with windows now. And I bring in my little carry-on suitcase. I have those little treasures. So when I get to my new home, and which is right now Antalya, I put those little treasures out. I put my pictures up. I put all of my stuff up, and within a day or two, I'm home. I got my coffee cup, I got all my little treasures up, and I'm home. To me, that's what home is. It's kind of having those things around you that make you comfortable and having those routines. I have those routines. I just have them in a new place every few months. So I I think it's, you know, again, it's kind of a different mindset. Do you ever plan on going back to the U.S. at some point? Well, I don't know if I'll stay a nomad forever. I may burn out on it, or I may get to a place and say, oh man, this is it. 
this is where I want to stay. And that could happen. I don't really have a specific plan to go back to the U.S. I have a son who lives in the U.S. I have some family and I have some friends in the U.S. And I keep in touch with them. I was in the U.S. two years ago for my son's wedding. And that's the last time I was in, in the U.S. And I've seen him since in other places. But I don't really have a direct plan to go back to the States. I think it's more likely for me, that I will find a place, a country somewhere else in the world that feels, that really pulls at me. And if I decide that I can't do this anymore or I don't want to do this anymore, I think that's more likely going to happen. I'll find a place that will that will draw me. Do you feel like you're able to stretch your social security out further in these places you're traveling versus if you're living in the U.S.? You're from you say, San Diego, which is not exactly cheap. I mean, California, but do you I lived in San Diego. I could never have retired in San Diego. No way could I have retired and said, no, couldn't have ever done it. And again, part of the reason I can do this lifestyle where I travel all over the world is because I don't have any possessions. I don't have any financial commitments. I don't have a mortgage. I, I don't pay utilities. I don't pay Wi-Fi. I don't pay insurances other than a, a travel medical insurance. I don't pay a car payment or car insurance. I have no financial overhead. So my only overhead is whatever I pay for accommodation, which includes everything, and travel. So really, it doesn't cost me much to have this lifestyle, but it's a trade-off. I've traded off things for memories. And I have so many memories now. I am one of the richest people ever in the world because I have so many memories and people in my life now, much more than when I had a house and a car in San Diego. Experiences over possessions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what do you do for doctor visits and things like that? Well, so far I have been ridiculously healthy and I never need to go see a doctor. But one of the challenges too, and in fact, I was, I was going to bring that up. One of the challenges is because I go from place to place every few months, I don't have a regular doctor. I don't have a regular dentist. I don't have a regular optician. I don't have a regular hair salon. So that changes a lot. So there again, it's back to you have to be flexible enough to be able to go with that and make those changes and um, not have that stability. You have to be okay with not having that stability. I have friends who've gone to the same hair salon for 20 years. I don't go to the same hair salon more than twice. If I get my hair cut when I get there, just before I leave, I've, up, I've got to say one twice. In fact, I just got my hair cut yesterday just down the street, and I hold my breath and hope it's going to be okay. <laughs> sometimes it is, and sometimes not so much. But if not so much, I go buy a hat. You know, it's okay. So I do have a travel medical insurance so that if anything did happen to me, of course, you, you need to have coverage. And some of the countries I go to require that. Some of them will check and you can't go there without it. So those kinds of things I do have. And I do on a regular basis, wherever I am, I'll get my teeth cleaned. I'll get my eyes checked. All of those kinds of things. So yeah, again, routines on the go. Routines on the go. I like that. So, Marina, yeah, we spent over an hour with you today, so I just want to say thank you so much for spending time out of your, your schedule today in Turkey. And let's just wrap this up with some type of concluding parting thought. <laughs> well, I, I think the most interesting thing to me is that travel, even if you don't travel as a nomad, go and travel. Even if you come back to a base, you travel for a while and come back to a base. Travel is such an incredible experience in opening your mind, in teaching you about things beyond yourself, that it's just the best thing, I think, that anyone can do for themselves. And if you have this insatiable curiosity, like I do, and I guess short attention span, because in three months I'm ready to go, um, to learn and really 
see what else the world has to offer. It's just the best ever. It's the best thing you could ever do. And I have loved it so much. And I continue to for I don't know how long yet, but. And by travel, you're not talking about getting an all-inclusive resort in Cancun or Jamaica or going on a cruise ship, are you? Oh, no, that's vacation. That's vacation. No, no, no. That's a whole different thing. Oh, we didn't hit on that. (laughs) Travel is not vacation. No, there's a lot of people that think travel and vacation are the same, and they're not. No. In fact, very often when I'm in a place and I'm walking down the street, I stop in a store or I, you know, socially or whatever. And the local people say, oh, are you enjoying your holiday? And I look at them and smile and say, oh, I'm not on holiday. I live here. That's, again, that live in a place, not on it. Travel means you are in a place and you are involved in that community to the extent that you can learn about this other culture. Travel is not taking a cruise and doing a port call each day for eight hours and taking a tour somewhere. That's not travel. That's vacation. And all-inclusive resorts are vacation. And they're wonderful, but they're not travel. My dear friends, that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.